When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bolin. And we've got a topic that I think you are going to be especially excited about today. Oh, you know it, brother. I this think one. so. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been around a long time, right? We've been doing this. We were just talking off air. We've been doing this for, what, five years now? Approaching six? Yeah. And uh, long-time listeners, even short-time listeners, mm-hmm. will probably know that you drive a Monte Carlo. I do, I do, and it's not the first Monte Carlo I've driven. Now, we, we've talked about this kind of stuff before. We get some great emails and great Facebook messages and tweets from people who rightly give me a little bit of guff about how much I like this car. Now, I want to say from the offset here that we're finally addressing the Monte Carlo, and one of the things that we need to establish is, you guys, I know it's not the best car. I just like it because it's mine, and I don't have to make car payments. So you're going to be very upfront about uh, about everything that's kind of gone wrong with it and things that have gone right with it as well. Sure. But uh, it's not... Your car is not the focus of today's program. It's it's the Monte Carlo in general. Like yeah. From the very beginning, we're going to go back to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about you know from the very very start all the way through uh, the very very end. So you know that kind of comes along the way though as you know part of the redesign, the major redesign mm-hmm. is the style of Monte Carlo that you have. Now what do you have right now? What, what uh, right now I have a sixth generation, a 2004, mm-hmm. and before that I had a 97. I didn't know that. Yep. Hmm. Okay. So uh, you've got. Uh, you're a, I don't know, I guess what's the way to say it, not a multi-generational, uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah, that's, that's way, a multi-generational yeah. Monte Carlo owner, right? Yeah, and uh, part of it is that uh, it just it just worked out for me, and as we'll see, there's some very valid criticisms, uh, often, often pertaining to the Lumina about uh, Monte Carlos of do, that generation. Do they hurt a little bit, Ben? Do they hurt? <laughs> does, it, does it hurt just a little bit when some people say things like that? Oh, it doesn't hurt my pocketbook, and that's the part that I'm, <laughs> you know, that's the part that I'm, I'm more persuaded about. But uh, we are going to probably need to make this a two-part episode because we have so much information. I guess we should start at the beginning because one of the primary questions 
people will ask about the Monte Carlo or about any car when we do an origin story just about a type of car mm-hmm. is uh, why. Why? Why is it? Uh, why was it a popular car? Why was yeah. it? Uh, why was it so uh, so loved by the American public? Mm-hmm. That's, may, that's uh, maybe the real question. Yeah. Why? What made this car, which again is not especially extraordinary, what made this car so popular? Well, before we dig into the whole history of the car, like starting in the late '60s and everything, I just want to tell you kind of why I feel that. Uh, we, we need to give it some com- some context, I guess, to explain why people really fell in love with the Monte Carlo. And there were uh, several good reasons, and there's probably about, I'm going to say maybe six or seven here on this on this quick list that I want to read. And um, you just have to you have to remember that you know anybody who was looking for a new car, a new car buyer who was looking for something that had style, something that had distinction, something that was unusual, um, and Monte Carlo was all that, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a, a few choices, and I'll tell you what the marketplace was like. Early on, and uh, pretty much throughout the 1980s, I'll say 1970s, 1980s. Um, but right at the very beginning, um, you know, of course, they had the, the choice between there's the, the Chevy Camaro or the Pontiac Firebird, mm-hmm. the Trans Am. They were kind of like um, oh, they were they're like less practical. They were more sports car sure. type vehicles, right? So yeah. um, there was also the Corvette, and there was the Datsun Z car. Now the Corvette and the Z car were both expensive, um, and of course they were. Kind of again, again, kind of impractical sports cars uh, for the typical buyer, I would say. Right. There was also the Pinto-based Mustang II, and uh, then the Oldsmobile 442, which uh, the article that I read kind of put them into what they called pseudo performance models. Now I know that <laughs> pe- anybody yeah. with a 442 is going to say, "Wait a minute," or anybody with the Mustang II that's going to have, you know, they had the V8, mm-hmm. uh, the great big V8 one right. I'm talking about. Um, they're going to say those were really performance models, but. Um, again, they, they called them pseudo-performance models. There were pickup trucks. Uh, there was like the Ford Bronco, which is kind of like an early SUV. Um, Chevy offered the El Camino, and then, of course, Ford with the Ranchero. Um, there were also high-end imports, which is no, you know... It's a no-brainer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really no you know contest there. I mean, those are the high-end, high-dollar sports cars that really, even at the time... No one could afford. They're expensive then. They're expensive now. That's still the way it is. It's a completely different category. And then there are also kind of low-end imports, which were not really stylish at all. Because today, low-end imports, some of them are really nice, and, sure. and you can get by in those. But um, at the time, they were really cheaply made if you were buying a low-end vehicle, mm-hmm. not not one of the top-end vehicles that we're talking about. So you can see that you know in that type of marketplace, the kind of car that we're going to describe for you today, uh, the Monte Carlo, that was a it was a really good choice. It was a solid choice for the American. Car buying public, someone who wanted a two door, um, you know, long front end, great big mm-hmm. V eight engine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just that uh, that classic American coupe design, right? And they wanted it a little bit nicer than some of the other coupe offerings available. Mm-hmm. They wanted essentially want a luxury coupe, or as someone might say, a little bit less diplomatically, they wanted something that looked and felt more expensive than it actually was. Oh, that's a good way to put it, Ben, because, um, you know, they were in direct competition with uh, with the Ford Thunderbird, mm-hmm. and the Thunderbird was a, uh, I guess it'd be a luxury coupe, right? I mean, that's another another personal car. See, this is the weirdness about this. They, Chevrolet called the Monte Carlo a, and this is a strange term, but they called it the personal luxury car. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a coupe, and of course it was a closed body, fixed roof. You know, at least two seats, but I had more. It had the back seat, of course. Right. Um, two doors. 
Uh, there was no B pillar, so you know when you rolled down the windows, it looked like it was wide open from you know A pillar to C pillar. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the, the the classic styling cues of the coupe, and and that's changed along the way. I mean, they've even started now talking about this is really weird, but four door coupes is what they're talking about. I I don't see it, but yeah, it so it goes so far away from the classic coupe theory. That uh, I just don't, I don't buy it. I would say it directly contradicts the uh, mm-hmm. nature of a coupe, but that might be a story for another day because we do know that Chevy, uh, when they were when they were thinking about what kind of car they should make for the marketplace, the reason that the Monte Carlo was a clever choice is because it did fill a gap. It there were people waiting to buy a car that would be somewhere in this area, both conceptually and financially, but they uh they had a history that they had to work against because Chevy was lagging man Chevy was not uh keeping up with the competition yeah you know what they've had a uh, direct competition with they're in direct competition with Ford as i mentioned a few times and mm-hmm. can i just just before i want to get to that but just just before that i want to i want to stress this uh this thunderbird competition oh yeah we because, need to because um you know ford ford coined the term uh personal car i believe it was right with, right uh, yeah with, with the, Go ahead with the uh, with wait. the launch of the uh, Thunderbird, the two seat in fifty five. Yeah, that's right? right. So it goes way back to fifty five. So we're talking a, a good solid fifteen years before the Monte Carlo was going to come out. Right in nineteen seventy. So what they did was they played on that, and they had this. Uh, they had they called it the personal luxury car instead of just the the personal car. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of a lot of differences in this thing, in that you know the the Ford was geared more towards a uh, towards a luxury vehicle mm-hmm. um, to begin with. I mean, the, you can just take a look at the uh, the early. Ford Thunderbirds, and I'll tell you, they're they're definitely they've got a lot of luxury styling cues in them. I don't know yeah. if, if they're really a luxury car or not, because you know the two seater that's more of a sports car to me. That later the Thunderbird kind of grew up and it became like this, you know, the square bird designs in the mm-hmm. mid sixties, and then later it became this great big um, touring coupes, I guess, maybe yeah. is what you could call it. Um, grew a back seat too. Yeah, it grew a great big, great big back seat as well, and uh, you know the Thunderbird and and. Chevrolet. So Ford and Chevy were kind of in this back and forth, and I've got kind of a, a decent example about this. And the, the thing is that Ford was seeming to be ahead all the time with, with Chevrolet, and Chevrolet was in the position to react a lot. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you had the Ford Ranchero from 1957. Well, in about two years, then comes the Chevy El Camino. And then mm-hmm. uh, I think they mentioned the Ford Fairlane, which I'm not exactly sure what the direct response from Chevy was worse than that. Uh, but there's about a two-year lag on that. I'm thinking maybe the uh, the Bel Air, something like that, or the Biscayne. Maybe. I think that's fair. I would I would probably go with the Bel Air actually. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So one of those two. So the, the Bel Air, the Biscayne, uh, the Mustang. Think about that. In 1964 and a half, that's when Ford came out with Mustang. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 1966 when they when Chevrolet came out with its Camaro. So there's like this two year lag. Well, when Thunderbird came around in 1955, there was really very little response from Chevrolet. Although I do want to say this though, it's kind of the the switcheroo on this one because. You know, Chevrolet had the the Corvette right uh, in 1953, mm-hmm. and then I believe that the Thunderbird was a response to the Corvette, and then people were looking for people to respond to the Thunderbird once again. So they're kind of looking for Chevrolet for like the third move, and yeah. it was a long time coming. And that's when um, all this started to happen with like the Pontiac Grand Prix and the Buick Riviera of the mid 60s, mm-hmm. and. Both of those cars, they have a little bit to do with uh, with the Monte Carlo as well. Yeah, and I think this is I think that's a really good point that you brought up. I'm glad that you said this because we can't really take the Corvette out of the equation here. You know what I mean? And when we when we talk about 
the first Monte Carlo coming out, which doesn't happen again, as we said, until 1970, it's important to remember that the Thunderbird was at this point in its sixth generation. So people waiting on that third move have been waiting for a long time. But the Monte Carlo also had a lot of influence from these uh, from these makes we mentioned earlier. Exactly. And you know what? The thing is that in the mid-60s, Coupes were extremely popular. In fact, that was the most popular brand or, or type of vehicle, rather, not brand, but type. And uh, as, fa- as a matter of fact, Chevy had the most popular coupe of the time. It had the Impala Sport Coupe, mm-hmm. which uh, which people just loved. They went crazy for that. But in the mid-60s, these two-door hardtops were really, really popular in America. And they were even popular as family cars, which a lot of people wouldn't guess that, you know, a two-door, eh, you know, bigger car with a back seat, but still right. two-door. That was that was a very very popular family car in the mid '60s, and uh, by 1967, just because of the popularity of this type of vehicle, General Motors, you know, you know how big General Motors was. They had Huge, all kinds of divisions yeah. and, and makes and models. Well, they had uh, Buick and Oldsmobile and Pontiac and Cadillac, and they all had um, these really these these stylish coupes going on. So they mm-hmm. had the great styling, and uh, you know, as I mentioned, the uh, the Chevy Impala Sport Coupe was the most popular of them. Right. But they also had uh, the Camaro and the Corvette. Uh, but those were kind of different. Well, they had a different audience, I guess. They had the Chevelle SS. They had vehicles like that that yeah. were more for the uh, uh, the super sports group, the mm-hmm. uh, the people that wanted to do a little bit of maybe road racing. Right. Performance over parenting. Exactly. How about that? Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's probably a good way to put it then. All right. So we kind of got the stage, st- stage set rather for uh, um, the late 60s. Right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is really when things start to come about for the Monte Carlo, because Monte Carlo won't debut until 1970. And uh, it's the mid-60s. I'm going to say like 1967, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, the Pontiac Grand Prix is up for a redesign. Now, remember, the Pontiac Grand Prix has been around since 1962. Right. And it'll hang around until 2008, if you want to know the truth. I mean, yeah, spoiler until, alert. Well, until, you know, Pontiac goes away, really. Right. Um, so... 1967, they're up for this redesign, and mm-hmm. guess who's involved in this, Ben? I think you know. Uh, are we talking about Bunky? Oh, well, Bunky's one. Bunky's one. Pete well, Estes, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then there's another big name. Oh, I'm missing it. It's... Oh, that's okay. You're, I, I, okay. We were talking about it off All air, right. so I'm not sure if you knew it or not. Lee-nays. Yeah, that could be one, but I was thinking... I'm just naming... Oh, I know. I Dave Hollis. That, Dave Hollis is one also. I'm missing everyone. You, got, no, you know what? I'm glad you said all those names, because they're all important, but the big one that I was thinking of was John DeLorean. Oh, and how did I miss well, that? Well, you're talking about... Uh, I, was, I, kind I of thought we were going to get to it. No, I, no, we, I, you're right. I surprised you. I shouldn't have done it, but, no, no. Uh, but John DeLorean was involved in this, and... and Really, in a roundabout way, early on, um, but but later it'll come into you know he'll have more importance later in the story. But. Right. So he, um, so John DeLorean, uh, people will recognize him if you are at all familiar with the car DeLorean. Uh, he was the heart and soul of that ill-fated car. I think it's fair to call it ill-fated, mm-hmm. or at least his company. And the the at the time he's the general manager of Pontiac. And the Grand Prix redesign comes about in part because John DeLorean is really considering cutting it entirely. Yeah, he wants to get rid of the Grand Prix, which, you know, it's, it's at the time it's a new car and uh, it's not really struggling, but it's not doing fantastic. And, uh, you know, later, I mean, Grand Prix was one of those cars that seems like everywhere you look, there's a Grand Prix on the road. Right, especially in the... Um Especially leading up to 2008, but yeah. well, one real quick, if it's okay, can we? Uh, can I name some of those characters of course. That, that I mentioned mm-hmm. or uh, expand on them a bit? So Dave Hall's the 
group chief designer for Chevy. Uh, of course, he knows about Thunderbirds. He's clocked the popularity of coupes, so they, they know that they have to do something. They're trying these different things. Uh, the other guy I named, uh, Bunky, I, I don't think it's fair to say that I know him well enough to go by his nickname, so let's give him the full man. Uh, Seaman Bunky Nudson, uh, S-E-M-O-N. Uh, he was the general manager at the time, and he was already rejecting some car ideas on the idea that Chevy had too many offerings on the market. Yeah, something like, uh, how many did they have? They had over a dozen cars or something like that? I wanna, yeah. uh, I've got a note here in just a minute that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll find that, I promise, somewhere along the way. Yeah, and they're not, um, they're not the, uh, they're not all Big oh, hits. You know what? I'm sorry, Ben. They have over two dozen models. Oh, Chevrolet. So Chevrolet had two dozen models of cars. So within Chevrolet, you could find more than 24 different vehicles that on your Chevrolet dealer's lot in different makes, models. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, different models, not different right, makes. Right, different models. So of course, they're all different. Uh, same same make. But <laughs> yeah. um, imagine that. Now then combine that with you know other brands that they own, like Buick and Oldsmobile and Pontiac and, and mm-hmm. Cadillac mm-hmm. and all those. And just imagine how how difficult it is to run a giant corporation that has that many vehicles out there. I mean, that's that's part of the problem is that they were they were spacing themselves too thin. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
And that's one thing that comes up almost in any business um, reorganization is the idea of whether we should diversify or whether we should concentrate. Well, see, then one one group, one type of car then starts to cannibalize the sales of the other vehicles. Exactly. That's very, very close and maybe a little bit less expensive. So you've got little, you know, fewer options on one vehicle and the other one has more options. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, maybe you'll find that a lot of people are going to go with the fewer options and then the other one that's maybe a little bit pricier is going to have to go away because, you know, sales are just dropping off. So. Which is the perfect setup in a way to take us back to the grand Grand Prix and the Monte Carlo. Yeah, well, here's what's going on. So there's this redesign, and John DeLorean's involved with it. Remember, he wants to get rid of the Grand Prix to begin with, but you know mm-hmm. it's coming up for for this redesign. And uh, DeLorean says, "Well, you know, I really do, I do genuinely like the design mm-hmm. of the of the uh, Pontiac Grand Prix for 1969." But it's going to be way too expensive for the Pontiac division to handle it itself. Now, remember, Chevrolet is like the the flagship mark for General Motors, right? And they're the ones with the deep pockets. They're the ones with all the money. Yeah. Now, Pontiac is there as well. They're they're okay. They're doing all right. They've got you know a lot of money to spend, but not quite as much as Chevrolet. So, DeLorean says, let's let's work on a deal. Ah, uh, yes. And he talks to his uh, buddy there, Pete Estes, a uh, dynamic general manager there. I think at Pontiac, right? Correct. And he. Uh, there's a little bit of historical, I guess, conversation, not quite a debate about the nature of Estes and DeLorean's relationship. Mm-hmm. We know that they, I'm going to call them friendly rivals, Scott. How about that? That's good enough. They were likely friendly rivals. And, uh, they, so Estes and DeLorean strike a deal and they're going to, uh, work on these projects together. I think as Estes may have been with Chevrolet. I'm going to have to double check on okay, that. So wait, I believe yeah. I believe DeLorean was with with Pontiac at the time. Estes was with Chevrolet, I think. And um, so the way that they're working out this deal is that DeLorean says we're going to share these ramp up costs. We're going to we're going to split the uh, split the price with the, with Chevrolet. So Pontiac and Chevrolet are going to share the mm-hmm. price of this one vehicle to be made because they like the lines of it. They thought it was a really good design. Everything's going to work out just fine. But they're going to have a one year exclusive deal for Pontiac because Pontiac was the one kind of calling the shots in this deal. Oh, and yes, you were correct, Scott. That was my error. Pete Estes had been working as uh, dynamic general manager Pontiac, but he was so good that when he made Pontiac number three in the industry, he got promoted. And then here's a little secret that in 1969, early 1969, John DeLorean then moves over to head up the Chevrolet division, so he's going to be in charge of Estes. Yeah. So that's the way that all works out. But, it's all within just a matter of months, really. But at the time, you were correct. At the time, DeLorean is Pontiac. And Estes is promoted and that's, out of Pontiac. And that's the way the deal worked. That's how it that's, worked. That's because they were able to communicate and get this done for 1970. But remember, we said that there's a one-year exclusive for Pontiac on that design. So they mm-hmm. use it for the Grand Prix for the or for the first part in 1969. Yeah. And they're going to allow the Chevrolet division to develop its own vehicle based on that design. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be exactly the same car as they sometimes do today, you know, where they just add, you know, badging and things like right. that. It's inspired by. It's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Inspired by uh, the 1969 uh, Pontiac Grand Prix design mm. is going to be this new vehicle, which they don't even really know what they're going to call it yet or anything like that, no. but uh, this new vehicle that's going to be around for Chevrolet for 1970. All right, so they brought in this kind of hotshot young designer, and his mm. name is Terry R. Henline. And uh, he comes, he's into the uh, Chevrolet design studio, but he's not brand new. He's been there actually since 1961. Mm. So he's been kind of hanging around a while, but there's kind of an interesting little side note about him that I do want to tell you about. 
Oh yes, yes. Uh, I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, do you want to you want to go ahead and knock it out? Yeah, maybe we should just say it. I mean, he was a he was a finalist in what um, was called the Fisher Body Craftsman's uh, Craftsman's Guild Model Car Contest in 1957 and 1958 in high school. You guys in high school, yeah. So you know, in back in you know the, the late 50s, he was part of this whole group. And and you may think, well, that's kind of a strange thing to say, is like he's a contest winner and he's designing a car. Yeah, it doesn't really work that way. He was a he was a, a car designer or, or rather automotive designer that. Um, you know, caught the attention of designers early on, and they would often go in and recruit guys. You know, from from high school ages and college, of course. You know, the GM yeah. was big into this for their art and style division, or whatever they called it at the time. And that's that's a good idea because you'll still see some companies doing this sort of thing in engineering contests. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that the Guild Model Car Contest was such a big deal is that GM would. Uh, the, would help provide scholarships for the winners of this. And if you won, you got a free trip to Detroit to tour the studios and then meet the designers. Which you gotta remember, put yourself in that time. Like right now you're thinking a free trip to Detroit. I don't know if I'd really even want that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not saying anything terrible about it. I'm just saying that, you know, it's still cool to go and visit those facilities. Cause I've even done that in the yeah. last two years. I've been, I've been to Ford and, and toured their facilities. They're fantastic. And everybody, Scott can say stuff like this because Scott has lived in Detroit. For a long, long time. That's right. And and you know what? Honestly, there's some really great, great places to visit around there. The Cranbrook Institute and mm-hmm. GMI and all those places. They're, they're fantastic. So don't get me wrong. I'm just I'm just playing around a little bit. But so so he officially joins in '61. He he did. And you know what? The, the the thing about this Craftsman's Guild contest is that some of these other winners, like some of the guys that have won this in the past, one of the guys' names was Bob Cateray, and I think he designed the 1956 Corvette. Virgil Exner Jr. came through that program. He was also, he was also a finalist. So, you know, the, the winners of that contest went on to good things. Not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them went on to bigger things in the automotive industry. Yeah, about a third of them, uh, right? You're right. About a third of them ended up having, uh, you know, formidable positions in the automotive industry after winning something like that or being a finalist in that. Because they were the cool kids. And Scott, when we're talking about the cool kids, you know what this makes me think of? What's it make me think of? Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together, and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I would be willing to bet that uh, Terry Henline was a snazzy dresser. Yeah, I would bet so as well because he is a designer and as soon as he officially joins, you know, in 61, uh, in uh, 67, he's actively working in the Chevy studio under the guy we mentioned earlier, Dave Halls, uh, and they start with... The Cadillac Eldorado. Yeah, and you know what? It makes perfect sense, I guess, when you look at the proportions of the original, um, the original Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. It, it does make sense when you look at it that way. But you have to look at the two cars side by side, and then you have to look at the Pontiac Grand Prix from 1969, yes. because that's the other car that they were basing this on as well. So you know, there's all these different considerations to think about. And I, I did this. I tried to look at this, you know, via split screen, and there were just no good comparisons. So I had you know mm. three different windows open on my computer <laughs> trying to compare the three: the the Cadillac Eldorado, mm-hmm. uh, the '69 um, Grand Prix. Pontiac Grand Prix, and then the uh, 1970 Monte Carlo. And you can really see how all three of those cars kind of work together, you know, the, the styling cues within them. Um, right. So, you know, you use the roof line, a different one, a different car, the uh, the, the fenders of another one. And so, what he did was, he, yeah. I mean, he built like these, he added these bulging fenders, these flared fenders, kind of mm-hmm. like, and they mentioned the pre-war cars, which I thought was kind of strange, but I can kind of see it a little bit. I mean, yeah, I, you can you can see it when you know what you're looking at does that make sense uh, yeah i think uh, as long as they say that you know these are these these are bulging fenders a lot like the pre-war cars only shrunk down just a bit and like kind of kind of tucked in yeah and uh, and i can i can understand that you can see that in the design there's but, also single yeah. headlight headlights mm-hmm. um, not the quad lights like other other chevrolets were using like the chevelle and other gm cars and uh and what they say about the uh you remember the grill Oh, yeah, yeah. Inspired by Rolls Royce, right? Because the grill kind of juts out. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's a tougher one for me to grasp, I guess, but it's inspired by maybe the, yeah. uh, the, the Rolls Royce. That's it's probably the best. Based on a true story, as they so, say. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, overall, you know, he had the right idea. He had, he took a bunch of different elements, he put them together, and you'd think that it sounds like this big hodgepodge mix. Like you know, Frankenstein like, to car. Exactly. But it turned out really well, and yeah. so well that they built a clay model. That they presented to uh, Pete Estes and Bill Mitchell. Remember Bill Mitchell yes. from, uh, from our Corvette stories? Uh-huh. He was the styling VP for GM, um, and they they presented this this clay model to them for formal approval. And both of them, Ben, both of those two guys. I mean, that's a tough crowd. That's a uh, Pete Estes and Bill Mitchell. Yeah. They both okayed it with no changes at all. Which, just so you guys know, 
is amazing, and I'm not going to say it never happens, but I will say it virtually never happens. It's a rare occurrence, I'll it, tell you that. Yeah, it's a designer lottery. He won it the first time he bought a ticket, and essentially. He's a, and he's a young guy. I mean, he's, yeah. a, he's a young designer, so this is uh, looking good for his career, right? Right, um, and and some, some people, of course, weren't uh, too weren't as into the design, right? They yeah. said maybe it was a little bit too reminiscent because of those bumpers, right? Yeah, the uh, the, the fenders and yeah, the bumpers fenders, and, yeah. and well, everything. They said it was a little too retro in design. They thought this uh, it was calling back too many pre-war styling cues. For them. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, I don't see too many pre-war styling cues in the early Monte Carlo design, but uh, maybe I'm way off on that one. I oh, don't know. One thing we do need to talk about while we're talking about the design of the first gym Monte Carlo mm-hmm. is that they did some things to to differentiate it from the Chevelle, especially. And those things, uh, most the, the ones we see most noted are the sail panels and then these like deep set tail lights, right? Yeah, and the front clip was was totally different. So the, yeah. and the rear fenders, those were a little bit different. But I mean, all in all, I guess we, we need to say that you know the, the Chevelle and the Monte Carlo, uh, they shared a lot of parts. Yes, yes, sir, they did. And that's, uh, that's something that we will see in future generations of Monte Carlos as well. In, in but, fact, didn't they yeah. call it, they called it a dressed up Chevelle, I think is what they called yeah, it. A yeah, sport coated Chevelle. Sport coated Chevelle. Yeah, that's that was, the one. that's the way they put it. They said, uh, because it's more of a luxury vehicle rather than a sports vehicle, they said, let's, uh, well, let's just say it's got a sport coat on. It's like it's dressed up for the evening, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that was not always meant as a compliment, but there, there was a problem here with some of these things. One thing, the the sail panels there, um, both on the Monte Carlo and the Grand Prix, they they looked good, but they didn't actually help with driving. Like they gave you bigger blind spots. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I mean, there was a limited sight availability in those things. I, I don't know. I guess sight lines is the way you'd say it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if the driver were to look over his right shoulder and try to look, you know, to whoever's in the passing lane next to them. Um, or, or the lane next to them, either either side, I guess, would have a little bit of a blind spot, and right. that was one of the critiques of this whole thing. And of course, you know, they mentioned that you know the styling wasn't always lauded by the by the uh, press either. They said, you know, what that that sport coated Chevelle yeah. uh, comment that was kind of an underhanded compliment. I mean, it was saying, well, you're just taking another car and you're just dressing it up a little bit and making it look that way. Right. And you're also taking you know the dash and you're adding wood grain to it and trying to make that look like a luxury dash when we know it's the Chevelle dash underneath there. We yeah, can- and you and I have talked about this kind of thing before because I I resent the implication. Because the implication is that this is just a badging switch, essentially. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's dressing up a, a lower brand, I suppose. Right. Or not necessarily a lower brand, but a different brand. And so that leads to the implication that um, the company somehow is seeking to bilk people by charging them more uh, for essentially the same product mm-hmm. when it comes down to performance. But this is, in my opinion... Incorrect. They're different enough. All right. You know what? I want to tell you about. We're getting kind of near the end here. I think okay, of our part yeah, yeah. one. But what I want to do is I want to say that um, I want to say that there were just more than cosmetic differences between the Chevelle and the and the Monte Carlo. Thank you. And uh, I can just list a couple of them for you here, real quick, and then we can talk about price, or we can hold on to price for the next episode. I don't know how we'll sure. do it, but okay. uh, but um, Monte Carlo and the Chevelle were mechanically similar, except that they had um, a base suspension that was a little bit stiffer for mm-hmm. the Monte Carlo because it had extra weight. It had that long, long front end. Remember that um, they very. called it heroically long front end. It's, it's a, a very long nose. Ex- it's it's a Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah, it's very very long. And but that's part of the whole style of it. You know, it's that short right. back and long, long front end. Smoother. 
ride. Um, it had extra sound insulation, so it seemed like it was a smoother ride. It, it <laughs> felt it felt smoother because it's the the driver perception, right? Yeah, and we talk about this in our earlier podcast on what makes a luxury car. Mm-hmm. A huge part of it is how the ride is perceived. Yeah, interior sound levels mm-hmm. and decibel levels and things like that. Now, I mean, I'm sure in a 1970s car, it's still awful loud, but it was a lot quieter than the Chevelle would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there were there were standard front disc brakes, which was an extra option on most Chevelles. I, don't, I think some may have had it, but maybe the SS models. Um, and then there was also um, kind of like a similar engine lineup for the mm-hmm. Chevelle and the uh, and, and the early Monte Carlos. So, you know, mechanically, they shared a lot of different things. There were some differences, but, um, again, it's just kind of a dressed-up Chevelle, really. Yeah, okay. All right, man. Okay. You going to buy that? You know, you're not wrong. Well, there's more, there's more <laughs> to it than just that. I mean, we're just hitting the highlights. But, right, uh, right. But, uh, but you're right. Let's not get too bogged down in that. Let's, uh, let's end on the price tag. What do you say? Yeah, let's do that because I've got some, uh, I've got some numbers that I've been, uh, kind of, man, really throwing them around a bit here. And I've even got some, uh, price comparisons between 2013 and, and 1970. Perfect. So, um, I think we can wrap it up with this. And, and it's pretty interesting to see where they priced it because you'll find out just how fair they were about pricing these. Um, all right. So. You got to keep all these things in consideration. That the starting price for the 1970 Chevy Monte Carlo was was just three thousand one hundred and twenty three dollars. Mm-hmm. Now that's about two hundred dollars more than a similarly equipped Malibu hardtop was at the time. And the Malibu was another vehicle, kind of like the Chevelle, that uh, you know similar in design. They all looked pretty close to each other. It's one of the two dozen cars in, in Chevrolet's line. Right. So. And let's be fair, that three thousand one hundred twenty three mm-hmm. is a no no extras price. That is the base of base prices. Exactly. Yeah, that was uh, that was right down to the very bottom. So if you wanted to add things like an automatic transmission or power steering or, or radio, radio, the price goes up to uh, thirty six hundred dollars. Now that adds about four hundred and fifty bucks to the price. So Who that's, wouldn't order a radio? Well, I don't know, but they said that you know that was almost always ordered that way. So you know they they almost always wanted an automatic trans because it had this luxury car feel. Uh, power steering, of course, because it was a big car. And then radio, of course, you're going to want a radio in your right. car. I mean, not many people are going to delete that. Now, there's another vehicle that we haven't even started to talk about yet, but there's the, uh, the, the SS454 model. And those, which we'll talk about in episode two, I promise, mm-hmm. uh, fully loaded SS454 could cost somewhere around $5,500, which doesn't sound like a whole lot right now. Uh, but as you'll find out, that was still pretty steep even back then. Do you have a, do you have a translation for I, us? I do. From 1970 to 2003. So let's see. The, the base price was 3123 That oh. equates to $18,798 in 2013. So about a $19,000 car. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. fair enough. But when you bump that up to the thirty-six hundred dollars with the automatic trans, power steering, and radio, um, that thirty-six hundred dollars translates to uh, just under twenty-two thousand dollars. Oh. So okay. it, it steps it up quite a bit. Um, and then we mentioned the SS four fifty-four, the um, mm-hmm. uh, the fifty-five hundred dollar vehicle. That's thirty-three thousand dollars, Ben. Well, that's now, a big ask. It is, but you know what? When we compare this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of let the cat out of the bag here. All right. Bit. And well. All right, so first things first. Let's get back to the uh, like the Ford Thunderbird. That started around five thousand dollars. Now, remember we talked about Ford Thunderbird being the uh, like the main competition, right? It started around five thousand dollars, which is about thirty thousand today, and it usually sold for about six thousand with all the add-ons and extras. So that's about thirty-six thousand dollars, a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. So you know they were well under that. So they were they were outpacing them, you know, on sales by based on 
you know, the dollar amounts. Uh, the Pontiac Grand Prix for 1970 was something like $4,000. So that was about a $24,000 car wow. um, in today's terms. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, you know, being based priced at thirty-one twenty-three, they were outselling the Pontiac Grand Prix. They were cannibalizing mm-hmm. some of the Pontiac sales on the Chevrolet side. So they were a little bit upset about that, but, you know, because they're offering a similar car with different options, you know, lower, lower options, but still, uh, you know, the size and, and a lot of the features that people wanted. And this goes back to our, one of our first statements at the beginning of this. Uh, Chevrolet had a wildly profitable thing on their hand. They have finally found a personal luxury car that was the cheapest you could buy. Exactly. And you know what? This is two-door coupe thing, you know, and, and as we'll talk about next time in our in our next podcast, we're going to talk about the Camaro and how the Camaro eventually replaces the the, uh, the Monte Carlo in the lineup in 2010. Well, I can tell you that, you know, based on numbers, the 2010 Chevrolet Camaro, the, the this will show you how fair they priced it really when it came out. The LS or base price vehicle was twenty two nine ninety five, which is right in the ballpark of that similarly equipped 1970 Monte Carlo that from you know mm-hmm. with the radio and the trans and all that yeah. stuff, right? That was that was priced at right about twenty two thousand dollars. An SS model was thirty thousand nine hundred ninety five in two thousand ten. That mm. was the Camaro Camaro yeah. SS. If you recall, the four fifty four SS uh, Monte Carlo was paid, priced right at thirty three thousand one hundred five dollars. So mm. they're they're extremely. I mean, they're right on target for what they're what they're pricing and re- replacing it with. Yes, in two thousand ten. <laughs> I know that's a lot to cover, man. But uh, but you know when you look at it all laid out in front of you, it yeah. becomes very clear what exactly happened here. And now also, I think especially for a lot of our younger listeners, it, it it's very important to hear how those prices translate to the modern day. Mm-hmm. At yeah. least in my opinion, yeah. Because when you look back at ads that say that you know this this brand new car is three thousand one hundred twenty three dollars, you don't realize that that's nineteen thousand dollars in today's terms, right? Because the first instinct is to say, well, I'm going to get four. But, uh, or why didn't everybody buy one of these and just put it in the garage and leave it? Well, that's because it cost $20,000. That's why. So before we head out for part one of our Monte Carlo podcast, I have some listener mail for you. Sounds good. Okay, Scott, a guy named Ben, who I promise is not me, wrote in with a suggestion for our show. He said, hi, Scott and Ben, I have a suggestion for a new show. I looked at your website and could not find any podcasts on semi-trucks. My suggestion is you should do a catch-all podcast on semis or maybe more specific, like one on Kenworth, Peterbilt, or an engine manufacturer like Detroit Diesel or Cummings, etc., Anyway, love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Not a bad idea. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, uh, I know we've talked about semi-trucks in general. Like sometimes uh, we've talked about the navigation systems yeah. and things like that that go along mm. with them and, and some of the troubles that truckers have with automobiles on the road. And, oh, yeah. Uh, the braking systems and all that. You mm. know, some of the new technology. But we've never fococused on a brand, have we? Like, like no, Kenworth we haven't. or Mac or any of those. Which could be pretty interesting. It could be. If we had a whole show on Peterbilt or something like that, yeah. that may be fun. Well, listeners, let us know that if you agree with uh, Ben from the internet who wrote to us. And in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed part one of our episode on Monte Carlos. Let's call this one the origin story. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to get into some really good stuff for the next one because uh, we're going to bring it right up through present day. Yes, stay tuned. And, oh, in the, oh. and there's NASCAR and there's uh, pace cars yeah. and there's all kinds of stuff coming in the next one. There's so much coming in the next one. Stay tuned. In the meantime, send us a line on Facebook. Drop us a tweet. We are Car Stuff HSW on both of those. 
visit our website, carstuffshow.com, and you can even send us an email directly. Our address is carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.